You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And if you are new to the show, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. We are discussing the series in its entirety, which as of this recording is the first season. So if you have not seen the first 10 episodes, beware that there are spoilers ahead. In this episode, we're getting sciency. Finally, I know is probably what some of you are saying. And that's fair, but we had to get a guest contributor to help us because, as we've mentioned, Stephanie and I are both lit majors. So, so <laughs> fortunately, we have Sally joining us today. Thank you, Sally, for imparting your scientific knowledge. <laughs> Hi, maybe you should wait till we're done to whether you want to thank me or not. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for agreeing to do it. Love your podcast. Now, am I am I wrong? You didn't get your degree in science, but you did like a lot of undergraduate science classes. Am I wrong? I have uh, a bachelor's and a master's degree, both in biology. And I was in a PhD program. And uh, I left after a period of time with a master's instead of the doctorate. Oh, I am wrong. Okay. Okay. So you are you are a master of science, right? Yeah. Right? That's right. Hey, so see, qualifications. <laughs> and even if there weren't, she's still more qualified than we are. So Than we are, yeah. <laughs> she, can, she knows what a nucleotide is. Actually, I know what a nucleotide is. They're but. a little dated. 15 years ago was the last time I was actually in it. But I guess I remember some stuff. And for the rest, there's Wikipedia. <laughs> still more qualified than we are. Either way. Yes. Yes. Should we not be admitting how unqualified we are during this podcast? Because... I think it's fair. You don't need to be qualified to watch a science fiction show. We're 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 qualified enough to do that. We've seen a lot of sci-fi. We have seen a lot of sci-fi. We're we're the fiction that Sally will provide the science. <laughs> there we go. So I think a good place to start would be to talk about what is cloning in general. I think we have the basic idea you you have um, a cell or an organism and somehow you create an exact replica of that cell or organism. But how exactly does cloning work, scientifically speaking? All right. Well, cloning is one of those words that has multiple meanings when you're talking about biology, biotechnology, reproduction. So at the kind of cloning that um, at its most basic, I guess, if you can say that cloning is basic, is where you're just taking short pieces of DNA and you're amplifying them. And I used to explain it to people like saying it was like a Xerox machine. You've got one small piece of DNA. You want a lot more of it so you can study it. So you just make tons and tons of copies. And often it's just one gene or maybe a short strand of DNA that you use bacterial tools to make several copies of like millions and millions of copies. So you can take the DNA and use it for other things. So that's what one definition of cloning that's usually in biotechnology, the way that orphan black is talking about cloning, obviously is they're talking about cloning entire organisms and, you know, they've cloned, you know, Sarah Manning and Cosima and Beth RIP, the late Beth and, um, and Allison. So those are, uh, entire organisms who have been cloned. And so they're, um, it's a similar concept, but different in the way that you go about it. But not too different, actually. So for cloning, the whole process of cloning, maybe it would help actually to talk about humans or mammals. And so the first mammal was actually cloned in 1997. Cloning had been going on way earlier in the 20th century with amphibians and frog DNA, but the first successful mammal clone 
happened in 1997, and it was a sheep named Dolly. So a lot of people probably have heard of that in the news. That's interesting, because I remember Dolly, but I didn't know that they had, they had been cloning like reptiles and amphibians before that, huh? Well, right, I didn't know that either. But thinking about it, it's like, well, it, I guess that kind of makes sense, because that's sort of the basis of Jurassic Park, right? That's right. <laughs> Which was earlier in the 90s. Yes, that's where my brain goes. There have been a lot of attempts to clone amphibians. I actually don't know if they had successfully done it before. They must have, but okay. you know, I guess I, I can neither confirm nor deny but I remember when Dolly the Sheep was cloned because I was in graduate school at the time. That was smack dab in the middle of my graduate school career. And so I was in, you know, a, a class. I think we were learning about DNA replication and the structure of DNA. And it was big news that somebody had managed to successfully clone a mammal because that had always thought to have been very hard. And uh, mammals are maybe more complex than amphibians. And Immediately, of course, it raises a bunch of questions about human cloning and the implications of it. But 1997, that's the actual procedure happened in 1996. And uh, then the sheep was born and, and grew up. And then in 1997, they revealed it to the world. So this is kind of a, a dumb question, probably. But I think probably because I've watched too much sci-fi. When I heard they cloned a sheep, I kind of envisioned that they put a sheep inside a machine and then like some rays, you know, beam down on the sheep. And then suddenly there were two sheep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's not what happened. Right. It, it was a sheep was there was some manipulation of of DNA where it was inserted into an oocyte of of uh, uh, another from another sheep and then there was a surrogate sheep who carried that sheep to term and then the sheep was born like a little baby sheep correct that's right okay so little baby sheep not automatic adult sheep correct <laughs> like i like i how old was i in 1997 i was, I was gonna say you're probably like in middle school or something right so <laughs> yeah i was 14 so that was my concept of cloning was just like oh they made another adult sheep out of an adult sheep that's you were, so you neat. were thinking <laughs> that they like replicated her like like on star trek like or on something star trek. yes <laughs> Yes, yes. No, hmm. maybe we'll get there someday. But yeah, they made use of, um, you know, I guess what nature gave sheep, which is, uh, you know, cheaper mammals. So they reproduce very similarly to humans. Um, female sheep have eggs. And what they did was they took some cells from the udder of another sheep and injected those cells into the egg, the DNA, actually, like the nuclear DNA. And then... Once And they did this for hundreds and hundreds of eggs because they had a very low success rate. And they saw which of the eggs successfully divided and started developing into embryos normally. And then they implanted those into surrogate sheep. And three were born and two died pretty quickly. And one lived and she was named Dolly because... She was named after Dolly Parton because the original, the source DNA was from the udder of another sheep. So, AKA the mammary gland. Exactly. So, so scientists yeah. sometimes have a sense of humor or else they're 14 years old. Maybe both. <laughs> but it was pretty significant for a couple of reasons because they, what they were doing with the DNA. So there's a difference between types of cells in your body. And if you took biology in high school, then you might remember this. So you've got, reproductive cells and that's you know eggs and sperm that are in your body and you also have what are called somatic cells and that just means non-reproductive cells 
So when they were doing cloning, it was not, um, it was using somatic cells, not reproductive cells. And part of the reason why that was especially exciting is that as an organism like a human or a mammal differentiates and, you know, stem cells that are, they're called pluripotent, they can develop into any part of the body. They can become the liver or the eye or the foot or the brain. As they develop into that, what they're going to end up being when they grow up, the DNA can actually change. The, the structure of the DNA can change quite significantly. Not all the time, but basically the genes that a brain cell needs to be a brain cell are different than the genes that a foot cell needs to be a foot. So same thing, same concept for an udder cell. It basically means if you take the DNA then you can still use it to create a brand new organism from scratch, even though the DNA has kind of grown up and differentiated, you know, or condensed in some regions. And it's not the same as DNA that you would find in your reproductive organs. Hmm. So I'm going to nerd out as is my way. And once again, mention another science fiction thing. And actually, I think from discussions we've had before, Sally hasn't seen this, but I know Stephanie has. I, I always think of of um, the fifth element because the one of the plot points early on in the film is that the character Lilu has basically been killed, but they find her hand and they rebuild her from her hand. Of, of course, the whole thing is that they actually rebuild like an adult Lilu with Lilu's memories. Apparently, although they take a while to come back, but hmm. I don't. I'm not sure why I'm bringing this bringing this up. Just the whole. That, that idea of taking cells from one, one thing part, and rebuilding the entire thing. Getting a whole person. I always yeah. thought that was kind of crazy, because I think that movie came out in 1997, too, if I'm recalling correctly. Pretty sure. I think you're right. Well, totally valid concept, then. You know, theoretically, you could use somebody's hand to make a clone of them if the DNA was in reasonably good condition. Though something, this is totally a tangent on the fifth element, something I never understood was her hand was like this weird metal looking thing and then she came out a human and i was very confused by that plot point <laughs> it, it was armor it was armor okay <laughs> okay yeah thank you and and uh -huh. yes the fifth element did come out in 1997 so it's it's a very funny movie people who have not seen it you should go see it it's it's a good movie it's a fun fluffy action movie but it's it's good is it a comedy oh yeah it's it's a it's little a bit of comedy, everything it's action romance it's a great movie Oh. It's insane, but it's it's really surprisingly good. So another thing that's, I think, interesting to note about cloning, too, is if, if you do, like I did when I was trying to refresh my memory on all of this stuff, and you go to the Wikipedia page about cloning and, you know, techniques in cloning, then you will see that there is a discussion of something called telomeres, which I think was really interesting because that is the exact part of DNA that we had been learning about when I was in school, when Dolly the sheep was cloned. And my class immediately saw some implications that we thought were pretty likely to come true for poor old Dolly. So let me tell you briefly what telomeres are. So DNA is like really, uh, you're familiar with the double helix structure that you probably learned in high school and that you see it's actually part of the orphan black logo very elegant and part of the opening sequence. And it's and, on um, the back of Kasima's laptop. I was going to say. Exactly. 
So what happens when you've got the entire chromosome in a human is that that would be really, really long. And, you know, if you laid it all out, like stretched it all out, it would be like super long, like longer than a tennis court or something like that. So what happens to the DNA is it kind of super coils itself. Like think of a phone cord. If anyone remembers remembers old school phones, non-cordless phones. (laughs) Exactly. So the DNA kind of coils up on itself. And, you know, it, it contains like the code for the genes. And then at the very end of the strand, the very long strand, there are these repeating sequences of nucleotides. And they're basically there as sort of they act as caps on the ends of the chromosomes, the linear chromosomes. So they're kind of there, like they don't encode necessarily genes, but they're there just to signify this is the end of the strand of DNA. And what happens when DNA is being replicated, there are a bunch of enzymes that go and they unwind the double helix. So imagine, you know, on the back of Cosima's laptop, you unwind these intertwined strands and a bunch of proteins attach to them and make copies. When they get to the end, this big complex bunch of protein isn't able to actually copy every single nucleotide at the end. So it always falls off before it's copied the last few. And I don't know if it's like in the single digits or tens or hundreds, but what that means is every time a cell divides and it copies its DNA, then the DNA is actually getting shorter. And so what that means is each cell has a finite number of divisions that it can experience before the telomere sequence, basically, there is no more of it, you can't copy it, and then the cell dies, because it it starts to eat away into genes that do something that are critical for the organism to live. And there's a name for what that what this limit is to the number of times that a somatic cell can undergo mitosis, that's when it splits and copies itself. It's called the Hayflick limit. And you know, one of the, one of the things that you can think of, if you have a, a sheep that's say like three years old, maybe, you know, that they took the cells from the udder to clone, then the, the cells are going to have shorter DNA than if it was a very young sheep, like an infant sheep, the DNA, just because the, the sheep has lived longer will be shorter. And so one of the potential implications is that, that people kind of thought at the time, that maybe sort of uh, has played out, I think the jury might still be out, is that clones wouldn't live as long as the original organism they were cloned from. And they might be, you know, susceptible to developing diseases earlier on in their lifespan. And the other weird kind of coincidence, I think, that, uh, that I noticed when I was reviewing the list of organisms that have been cloned, and mammals specifically, is that very many of the clones that have been successfully generated have died of respiratory infections or of lung defects, which, you know, I kind of wonder the people who are creating the show Orphan Black, they must have been onto this in some way. Maybe they noticed it as a trend. They probably have consulting scientists, but it does seem like a pretty common thing for clones to have problems with their lungs and respiratory problems. So poor Katya, and poor, poor somebody else we don't talk about. Yes, I, I can confirm that Orphan Black does in fact have a science consultant, and her name is Kasima. What? <laughs> Did you not know that? No. 
I don't I don't really know much about like the production of the show. Seriously? Yeah, um I believe it's Graham Manson's friend, Kasima, huh? is the science consultant for the show and he consulted with her I I don't know how many years before the show actually got started. Was sort of invited her over to to talk about the science behind all this. That's awesome. Yes. And and yes, she is the basis for the character Kasima. To wow. some extent. I don't I don't know what extent, but obviously name, but <laughs> Huh? Well, going back to the tendency for lung disorders, I be- at least in humans, the lungs are one of the last organs to develop in the body. So it would kind of make sense if you were cutting short, if you had like a shortened DNA, that maybe the lungs would be the most susceptible to having defaults of some kind. Maybe that's just me with my non-sciencey. But, you know, the lungs are one of the last organs to develop when in utero. It's true. And it's sort of interesting thinking about there being essentially degradation over the course of copies, just because that's that's a thing in non-organic stuff, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Like, a, if you photocopy a photocopy, the quality is going to decrease, degrade, yeah. get worse and worse. That's right. Entropy. There you go. My non-scientific analogy. The analogy totally holds up and... You know, I think that's always one of the things I liked about science. This is a tangent, not really even about Orphan Black, but that I think that so much of what's happening in cells and what happens as organisms mature and develop, it's easy to describe using analogies from everyday life, mm-hmm. like the Xerox machine. So and, and Dolly, the, the sheep, the cloned sheep, didn't she die of, of respiratory infection? She did. Was she younger than most sheep when she died? Well, I. it looks like, from what I can tell, I think she died sooner than the average lifespan of the average sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a little bit of debate about whether the Hayflick limit is applicable to each cloned organism, because there are some cloned organisms that have uh, lived the natural lifespan of whatever their species is. Okay. So, you know, I think there are so many variables that it's probably hard, in my opinion, to pin it down. Maybe it depends where you take the cells from, you know, an udder, a stomach. The human cloning that's been done to date has been done with skin cells, adult human skin cells. And, um, you know, like those clones, I think because of ethical issues, were not allowed to develop past an embryonic state prior to 15 days of age. Because the scientists who created them said, you know, before 15 days, you know, this embryo is not considered a human and we're going to destroy it. So what are sort of the ethical issues around cloning in the scientific community? Does it have to do with, with human testing or where where exactly do the, does, do the dilemmas tend to lie? Well, from what I, from my personal experience and from what I've been able to read, these are the ones that I've noticed. That's not to say that there aren't more because there probably are. I think that, you know, the first that is religious implications and people playing God. And, you know, that, that is an issue that exists both within the scientific community and outside of it. That's why some people have objections. I think that, um, one of the most commonly cited use cases for why would you want to clone humans anyway? Right. Is, for therapeutic reasons, if, you know, I have organ failure, then I can be on a list for organ transplant. It can take many years. And then 
it's possible that my body will reject a donor organ anyway, because your body attacks foreign bodies. Exactly. But if you could grow yourself a new liver, for example, then it would be genetically identical to yourself. And so your body, you wouldn't need any immunosuppressive drugs for your body to accept it. And I think that's pretty huge, especially for people that are struggling with chronic conditions, you know, and, uh, but I think that the people, the place where the ethical issue may, may come into play is nobody right now exactly knows how to grow up just a pancreas. Right. You have to so, grow a whole person. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that some scientists are further along down the path. Maybe I know that you can grow like clone muscle cells. You might've heard in the news, people are cloning, you know, muscle tissue from animals and then cooking it up and serving it. That was on NPR several months ago. And uh, apparently it tastes fine if you are into eating meat. And actually PETA said they didn't have any problem with that since an animal didn't have to suffer to generate that meat. <laughs> but for I think for creating a functional organ that you could transplant into a human, right now at least it seems like you have to grow a whole human, kill the human, and, and take out the pancreas. Right. Or maybe not kill the human, maybe just leave them without a pancreas. I don't know. I know that I haven't seen the movies that have dealt with organ farming specifically, but I know there are a couple or several maybe even out there about, you know, there's a protagonist who discovers he or she is a clone. And then, you know, it's a big conspiracy because people are living hedonistic lives. And then whenever their lungs give out from whatever they're doing, they just get new lungs from their clones. Incidentally, I saw that movie, but I didn't know that that's what the movie was about. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, cool sci-fi movie. And I think we rented it or something. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's horrifying, <laughs> actually. I come from a, a social science background. And we, we have to talk about, when, in regards to social science, social scientific experiments, we have to do informed consent and things like that. And so... I guess I, my thinking was that, you know, if you were to have to grow an entire person just to get a pancreas, it's like, okay, you got informed consent from maybe the person that you cloned, but now you have this cloned individual. Does does that person get to have informed consent about whether he or she can have their organs harvest? You know, and, and I, I, get, I was thinking that maybe that might be a particular st sticky situation. Well, this is also, I mean, this is something that plays out right now. You know, if um, families have a child who has some kind of disease like leukemia and they need a bone marrow transplant and they can't find a match, families sometimes make the decision to have another child. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very um, serious issue. There are a lot of, I've seen TV shows and books that kind of deal with uh, the perspective of the child who was created, you know, to be a donor for his or her sibling. And, you know, what do they think about their life when they when they think about it? And I'm sure like, it's not an easy thing to answer. Because I think as a parent, if you have a child who needs help, you want them to get help. And, you know, if you have a second child, where you might not have other with the intent that that child becomes sort of a, a donor for their sibling, I'm sure you love the second child as well. But it creates, I think, I don't want to overgeneralize because I've never been obviously in this situation. I'm sure that there are probably people that watch Orphan Black or science fiction and listen to your guys' podcast that perhaps they're in that situation. So, you know, I don't, I think it's 
a complicated thing, but it's something that, you know, we don't have to wait until human cloning exists to observe the effects of, you know, a sentient being knowing that they were brought into existence, you know, with the primary purpose of helping someone else, you know, because of their genetic material, because it's happening right now. What I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say something in a sensitive way that doesn't presume, you know, to presume how people feel about it. But, you know, it is happening. That leads into maybe one of the third biggest implications of cloning, which was fascinating. You know, again, this is on Wikipedia, source of all knowledge. (laughs) And it's last in the paragraph about the ethical implications, which are a lot of people have questioned how clones will relate to families and how they'll relate to society at large if they're created, which blew my mind when I read it, because it seems like from what we've been told so far on Orphan Black, that the Dyad Institute is sort of the scientific engine, but then the Neolithians and um, Dr. Leakey specifically, and the monitors, their job is sort of to collect data on how the clones in Orphan Black are interacting with the world about them. And it seems like the monitors have instructions not to interfere too much. I mean, to the extent that they're not able, if Donnie is Allison's husband and Paul was Beth's boyfriend. Certainly if you're interacting, you know, if you're romantically attached to a clone, then you're affecting their life. But Paul was also receiving instructions from Olivier, you know, if if Beth was sort of like having a mental breakdown, you know, not to interfere, just to report back. And so it seems like the monitors and Dr. Leahy exist to see how the clones are adjusting to life in the world. And in fact, if you read the Orphan Black Wikipedia page, it also states that that organization and those people you know, exist to monitor how the clones adjust to life in the world, which you can only trust Wikipedia so much. But I never kind of gathered that that was like explicitly stated from the first 10 episodes of the show. I don't think it's an illogical conclusion, but I never heard anyone say that outright, that they were, that the purpose of creating these clones and releasing them into, you know, Russia and Canada and the U.S. and everywhere in Germany was to study how they interact with the world. Right. It's not ever explicitly stated, but I think it's more a presumption based on the fact that why else would they have done that? Right. There's definitely some sort of social experiment going on. I think probably they're also looking at lifespan, seeing if they're susceptible to particular types of diseases. We've seen a susceptibility to respiratory disease as well as mental illness, perhaps. But yeah, they could have done that by having them all like Rachel and being raised within the organization. So obviously they had other motivations by having, you know, being raised by different families in different areas. Yeah. Which actually makes me kind of wonder if they have a control group that they did raise that maybe Rachel isn't the only one. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, again, I mean, seeing as how they're scientists, you'd think they would have a control group, Group, not not just just Rachel. One control. Yeah. Well, what do you guys think of when you hear about cloning and the ethical issues? I guess my big thing would be about ethical treatment of clones and and would they be treated like like human beings or are they would they be treated then like a subset, you know, and and what type of rights would be given to clones if that became something that we could do pretty easily in the scientific community? 
that's my big thing because I, I tend to think about human rights and, and that sort of thing in general. So that's my big question, I, I guess, would be, would they get the same treatment as other humans or would, I think they should, but, you know, would 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 they be considered as such? And in, in which case, how does that affect how clones are made and sort of the intentions behind cloning? Right. I mean, and this is sort of something that they touch on in the show and that you just mentioned that, you know, there there is sort of an aspect too of, you know, how would it affect the individual clones? You know what I mean? Like, because mm-hmm. that's kind of got to be something huge to process to to figure out. I mean, not just you know societally and and ethically where these people fit in, but I mean, as one of those people, how would that affect you? You know what I mean? Definitely. Am I- and you, Am I making any sense at all? And I think in regards to Orphan Black, I think we're seeing that really come out of Allison, um, particularly her, her. She's been the one who sort of expressed the most feelings about finding out she's a clone. The others take it more or less in stride and haven't really talked about it all that much. But we hear Allison say things like, you know, I'm I'm telling you and you're just another version of me. I'm not even a real person. So mm-hmm. we, we do have that explored on the show somewhat. uh, in in Allison's case, I think. I think probably they'll get into that more in subsequent seasons. Well, definitely. And I think what you said, Stephanie, about sort of the rights of clones, like, that's probably one of the biggest ethical areas, because I think we've already established, at least, you know, in most of the world, that humans can't be property. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we've seen in Orphan Black that each of the clones has a DNA sequence that when you translate the binary says, you know, this is the intellectual property of whoever, the Dyad Institute or whatever. And so the implication there is that um, the clones are owned, they're patented, they're uh, property, I guess. So right after the run of Orphan Black, there was a court ruling in the United States in regards to this asking if you could patent DNA, essentially. And the court ruling basically said that if you cre- you wholly created the DNA new in a lab, that could be patented. However, if the if the DNA had been taken from an ex- an existing human being, that could not be patented. And so, I think in regards to Orphan Black, that kind of m- would resonate as to whether the Diet Institute had wholly created the clone's DNA from scratch, however you would do that, or for, um, or if they, there was like an original that woman that they had cloned to make the make the clones. Exactly. So I looked this up, and the 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 company that was uh, at the center of the lawsuit was called Myriad Genetics, and the patents that they held were over two breast cancer genes that they had identified. And the issue was using the genes and then obviously developing treatments and therapies and ways to identify. I think that's the primary thing. BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the names of the genes, and you've probably heard them if you follow this in the, uh, in the news at all. But to I- identify if somebody is a carrier of those genes, there will be a certain protocol. And apparently since Myriad Genetics held the patent for it. Anyone who used the protocol to identify whether a woman was a carrier for those genes and thus at a higher risk for breast cancer had to pay a pretty steep royalty to the company, Myriad Genetics. 
you know, so it was very expensive to screen people for breast cancer, more expensive than it should be. And since these, the genetic material for the company to identify the genes had come from a woman in the first place, I guess what the court said is that since this DNA originated from an organism, you cannot patent it. The only way you could have patented it is if you had sequenced the DNA from scratch in your lab, which, um, a word about that, like, it's possible to do that. You can use a machine to add base pairs one at a time to create a strand of DNA. It takes a while. It's not perfect. And to do that for the entire sort of chromosomes, all of the chromosomes that a human would have, like there's no way that you could sequence like a person from scratch or really probably not even necessarily like a human gene from scratch. So I think the implication of this ruling anyway is that, uh, you know, any way that you isolate a gene, if it originates from, you know, a person or an organism, then, you know, you can't patent it, which I think is sort of the right decision, because I think the implications of that are that more people can get screened for breast cancer. Well, and it's kind of just ridiculous to think about the fact that, you know, you're born with these sets of genes that it's not like you choose them. It's just a a random combination that you end up with the genes that you have. And for this company to say like, oh, if you have those genes, we, we kind of got a patent on those. And it's like, how? <laughs> right? I'm also going to patent the color green. <laughs> that belongs to me now. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I think that, um, you know, it's a pretty nuanced position that I believe that companies like that have, which is, you know, in the past, like some of them have certainly patented the DNA itself. But others have also patented the techniques that they use to either isolate it or to replicate it. Um, And that's, I think, where the royalties come in. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense to me, though. Like, that would be their intellectual property, the way that, like, the technique that they develop, that kind of makes more sense. Yeah. I I think it's Mm -hmm. unfortunate that that then makes the testing really expensive. But that makes more sense to me, intellectually speaking. Well, I think this particular court case, they were claiming that they owned the genes. Right. So that's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. I mean, cause like, you know, even I, as a student of biology from way back when, you know, if you gave me a lab and then let me swab your cheek, then <laughs> this is not an invitation by the way, but I could probably... <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Sal is really into listening. cheek swabbing if you get my face. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it would be possible for me using the techniques that I learned in graduate school to copy some of your DNA. It would probably take me a few tries because I was never like the the biggest whiz at it in the first place. But I could do it and I've done it before and I could clone the DNA and I could make copies of it in a bacterium. And then I could patent your DNA. I could patent your genes. And I mean, it's like it's not that hard, actually. So the techniques, um, you know, that for cloning, especially short strands of DNA. We used to have a joke in graduate school that they involved mixing small amounts of liquid, transferring them from one tube to another and waiting for 10 minutes. And, you know, that's like what the process of science was. So it was, it's, um, it's detailed and rigorous, but, you know, the fact is that like, it's not, it's repeatable by people who can learn the technique and it is, it's not rocket science. I don't want to make it sound like super easy, but uh, <laughs> I learned it. You can too. 
give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I did notice in looking at something online that it was talking about how of all the various scientific procedures that cloning DNA really wasn't, as you say, wasn't that hard or that expensive as a scientific procedure. True that. And, you know, like a couple of other random things about cloning, like the technique that was used to create Dolly, and I think the most commonly used technique that has been used to clone other mammals and amphibians and organisms is what we talked about, which is the somatic cell nuclear transfer into into an egg of the same species. But something interesting is that the human clone that was made from the leg cells of the scientist who did it were not inserted into a human egg, but they were inserted into a cow egg. Hmm. And the embryo started to develop anyway. And so they don't know if it would have developed normally or not. But I think they were trying to keep themselves as much out of the weeds as possible. Right. There's also like a second technique, which is called reproductive cloning. And that's when you have a blastocyst, like a fertilized egg that has divided a few times. And then you sort of manually separate the blastocyst. It's similar or analogous, I guess, to the process that happens naturally for identical twins when, you know, the fertilized egg or the fertilized blastocyst splits in utero. But you can you can do this, you know, with like lab tools. You can make a blastocyst separate into two and then you end up with identical twins, but they're clones because you force that to happen instead of it happening naturally. Hmm. As I sit here and think about how all these things relate to Orphan Black, and it's very interesting. I know. My brain hurts a little bit, actually. Because <laughs> I find it really interesting. The thing that I found interesting in Orphan Black was the was the idea that Sarah and Helena were both clones and twins. And that was just kind of, that just kind of blows my mind to think about that. I know it probably shouldn't, but I was just like, wow. They're both artificial clones and natural clones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what they say. And I mean, I think like there probably is no reason to disbelieve Sarah and Helena's birth mother. Although just after years of watching science fiction television, especially the Canadian kind, I trust no one. I don't know if I, uh, if I... And you said you don't watch (laughs) X-Files. I know. Well, maybe someday I will. And then I'll feel vindicated. But, you know, I mean, I think we can probably take the show at its word that Helena and Sarah were twins that resulted from, you know, sort of, I guess the natural process of a fertilized egg splitting into two because Sarah's birth mother indicated that, uh, you know, she had agreed to become a surrogate for a couple and had undergone in vitro fertilization. So I should also have well, said, I guess it could also be that they were the result of two eggs implanting from in vitro, right? Unlikely, but possible. Well, I suppose possible, although it seems like her, she, what she, what I remember her birth mother, whose name I can't remember. Amelia. 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 What I remember Amelia telling Sarah is that, you know, she'd agreed to be a surrogate. They'd, they had transferred um, via IVF one egg, which then split inside her into two. Okay. And I, the reason that I find that credible is that, um, Dr. Leakey said they knew about Helena and they lost track of her, presumably because Amelia gave her to the convent. Um, But it seemed that perhaps they just didn't know at all that Sarah existed 
that was sort of the connotation that I got from, you know, how wowed he was by meeting Sarah. And, um, you know, I, I think there are many unanswered questions about Mrs. S and what her connection is or was to the Neolithians and the Diet Institute, uh, and whether she was serving as some kind of monitor or if she just sort of was rescuing Sarah for other personal reasons. But I got a strong sense from the show that Sarah wasn't necessarily even on their radar. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But I think Stephanie disagreed with me when I said that to her before. No, I I am of neither opinion. I, I think they could play it either way at this point. Okay. Canadians, man. <laughs> <laughs> and Sally is half Canadian, so really she's being self-loathing when she says that. <laughs> <laughs> That's internalized Canadiophobia. <laughs> Something I also probably should have said when we were talking about cloning Dolly the sheep and cloning human skin cells is that when they use like a, a donor egg, they remove the genetic material that that egg contains normally. So like an egg and a sperm, they each have DNA, you know, one copy of the DNA from, you know, each parent, that when a sperm and an egg join and are fertilized, then the DNA combines. And, you know, that's how you end up with genes that are half from, from each parent is that, you know, the egg just naturally contains some DNA. When they're using eggs for cloning mammals, they remove I think anyway, the, the, the DNA that was in there. So it doesn't recombine with anything and interfere. There's actually also a really common technique that's part of IVF that's called ICSI, which is intro, intracytoplasmic spermatozoa injection. And I may or may not have pronounced that entirely correctly, but basically the idea is if you're undergoing IVF, but your eggs maybe uh, are having trouble getting fertilized in the Petri dish through think back to high school biology when you see the video of like the egg and there are these millions of sperm cells banging their heads against it. And then finally one gets through and then, woo, that's the moment like that it's fertilized. <laughs> you remember that? Probably everybody saw that video yes. in, in yes. high school. Mm-hmm. So especially if your eggs are, if you're older or for some other reason, if your eggs are a little tougher for a sperm to break their way into, then if you're undergoing IVF, they can actually use uh, a very thin, fine-gauge needle to inject one sperm directly into the cytoplasm of the egg. And that just helps it break through, you know, the membrane and all the proteins that surround it. That's actually how I got my kids. Like, uh, we have three kids, and so we have twins that I had via IVF. And so I had to, part of the process was ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm spermatozoa injection and uh you know so it's great because my kids are awesome and adorable yes they are very adorable wow thanks i was not fishing i was fishing (laughs) (laughs) but that's um you know that's interesting it's a it's a similar i think technique there have actually this is a wild tangent but we discourage those on on the show you need to be very on topic sally (laughs) Clearly, I know I can totally tell. Speaking of the from every podcast that you guys that you guys produce, I can tell <laughs> are frowned upon. There have actually been some scientists who have kind of thought or modeled. Um, there's really nothing that would stop 
this process biologically from happening. They may have even tried it in the lab, although I don't remember and I didn't look it up beforehand, where they remove the DNA from one woman's egg and inject it into the other woman's egg. And so it recombines, it becomes, you know, a fertilized egg. It starts to divide into a blastocyst. Like theoretically, this should be possible that, um, you know, two women could both provide the genetic material for offspring. And, you know, it would be female because both of the uh, sex chromosomes would be the X chromosomes. There wouldn't be a Y chromosome involved. But, you know, this was a it was a big story. Gosh, I think it was in the New York Times or something um, a few years ago. And, you know, the the logical leap is like lesbians can, you know, both contribute genetic material to their kids. But I, I think that maybe this news came out when it was still George W. Bush was president and all kind of human uh, experimental DNA cloning techniques and stem cells and stuff like that was discouraged. So I think pretty quickly, like there were people saying we should never do this. This is this is not good. So is that considered to be a type of parthenogenesis or is it something else? Well, parthenogenesis is asexual reproduction of, you know, females of the species, usually most commonly amphibians and reptiles. And when males are not in the vicinity, then they can reproduce and produce more female offspring. And I think that it's a pretty interesting evolutionary technique, especially for a species that might undergo population fluctuations where you know, sometimes maybe there aren't males available, so the spe- the organism can continue to live. I don't know that the definition of like what we just talked about would be parthenogenesis, because I think it would still be considered sexual reproduction, because the process, you know, sperm and eggs undergo a process of meiosis to create themselves and to um, end up with like the one copy of the DNA that they each bring to the table. And so even if you started with two female eggs, they would have both gone through the meiosis. Artificial sexual reproduction, maybe. Okay. We could call it artisexual reproduction. And then if we do it by hand, we can call it artisanal artisexual reproduction. <laughs> I think we should patent that technique right now. Let's go register a Tumblr account that's called that. Because if it's on Tumblr, man, then that's real. it. <laughs> Then people can heart it and they can reblog it. Exactly. (laughs) Go for it, Sally. Yes. But, you know, I mean, I think that, like, ethical implications are when you're doing all this stuff, like, you know, you're in the lab, sometimes things aren't going to turn out the way you expect them to. And scientists could make mistakes. And so then, you know, you end up with a lot of, you know, genetic material, fertilized embryos on your hands that, you know, either if they're not going to be viable humans, they have to be disposed of. And I think that's also sort of one of the big considerations when you're talking about sort of operationalizing any of this kind of thing on a grander scale, even if it, if the ultimate aim, which it mostly is, is to help people in their lives, then uh, you also have to consider the consequences which maybe that's what the Diet Institute is trying to do. Maybe they're trying to figure out what the consequences of all this would be if if they brought cloning into the mainstream for whatever reason. Well, that's a big question I've always had about the Diet Institute because there's there's a big suggestion that they are what is behind the cloning experiment. We also know that the Diet Institute is is connected to this idea of neolutionism, this idea of kind of self-directed evolution, people with tails, people with you know, one white eye 
et cetera, et cetera, freaky leakies. But how does, how do you think cloning or this cloning experiment might fit into that idea of self-directed evolution? I think it's probably central to the idea of self-directed evolution. Like, I think the only reason that I can think of now for creating a bunch of clones is that you can either make use of their body or their organs to enhance yourself, especially if you've undergone some kind of harm. But, you know, the social experiment part of it, it could also, there could be some reason for that, like, um, I guess seeing like what people are capable of in extreme situations. And uh, I don't think that this idea is necessarily very well fleshed out, but, you know, if I could create a hundred copies of myself, you know, I have a life right now where I think like I do certain things. I've always joked that I'm like maybe 50% Allison, 30% Kasima, maybe like a smidgen of, I don't know, Helena on the bad days, but, you know, what if you could send out a hundred copies of yourself into different extreme situations and see, you know, how this quote unquote other version of you measured up that might serve as inspiration or it might serve as, uh, I don't know, like some, some other reason. I don't know. Like what would, if somebody catapulted me into outer space and I had to go live on the International Space Station for three months, you know, how would I, how would I do there? Would I hold up or not? Like, I probably don't want to take three months of my own life away, but if I could send a clone and then maybe like the clone comes back and it's like, it is the best experience of my life. I learned so much and, you know, I have all this confidence and then I'd be like, okay, you know, I'm going to do that too and reap all these benefits. But then, you know, if the clone came back and said, man, it was really terrible and I had a psychotic break and isolation is really not for me, then I would know like, all right, well, I'm not going to go down that road. I don't know. I don't think that, I think the expense and the trouble that the Diet Institute went to make these clones was probably not for reasons like I've just described that, you know, could be frivolous. I'm sure there's some larger reason behind it, but honestly, like the only thing I can think of is uh, taking away parts of the body or the organs. Well, it, it is interesting that they've got the social aspect to this experiment, because again, why else would you create them all and then send them all out on their own paths in different places. I kind of wonder how much of it is some sort of, I don't know, experiment or test about environment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, because they're on in different areas, you know, they've spread them out at least across Europe and, and North America and who knows where else, but. That could be interesting to consider given that if the idea is for, people to control evolution, to be able to guide their evolution the way that they would like. It would make sense that they would want massive amounts of data as to how environment might affect whatever changes they might make to to like a physical body in some way. That That kind of makes sense to me on some level. Right. But we always come back to this idea. I've just kind of, I can't figure out what their end game is. What what goal is it that they're trying to find answers to? Because there are just so many variables mm-hmm. in this situation. I kind of can't figure out what it is that they wanted to accomplish with this. I mean, I'm assuming we're going to get more info on this in season two. We almost have to, 
the way they've set up season one. Or it'll remain some giant mystery, which they can also feasibly do because it is a character piece. But True. I haven't seen any indication that this is part of the theme or the message of the show. But, you know, the planet that we live on right now, Earth, most of us anyway. That's what it's called. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like we have influenced our environment very greatly. And the climate is changing. And it, I think that there are some in the scientific community that think we're past a point of no return for the planet rising a few degrees, and it's going to drastically change life as we know it could possibly even cause extinction. So I had a philosophy professor when I was an undergrad, I took one philosophy class, that's really, I think all I could handle. But, you know, his take on whether humans had an ethical obligation to be stewards of the planet was that we did not that we should use all the resources that we wanted to to better our situation, because when we exhausted the resources of this planet, we would go and colonize other planets. And, you know, if that happened, then, you know, the rate that humans, at which humans reproduce is, is what it is. But if you could clone people, especially people who were very bright or very resourceful, or had the ability to be both, like Cassina is very bright and very smart, Sarah thinks really well on her feet. You know, Allison has a lot of skills as well. She could go and make these other planets a real home uh, when we colonize them. So, you know, I guess one... Torture people with hot glue guns if necessary. Yeah, if they get out of line, she could be law enforcement. And then, you know, poor old <laughs> Beth, like, she, she may or may not have a role in um in a in another planet like that. But creating sort of a, a superhuman might be one aim of an organization that dabbles in self-directed evolution. I don't even know what that is. I mean, basically, if if you take the phrase and say, what do you think that is? I think maybe it's me saying, I will, you know, kind of control my genetic destiny. But I don't By think... By adding a tail. By adding yeah, a tail. That's just, uh, I think that Olivier was sort of you guys touched upon this in one of your podcasts. He was uh, deliberately made out to be a character that was sort of an idiot. And maybe Leaky like, was kind of like thinking, you don't get it, dude. Like, the, the idea is not that you grow a tail. You know, the idea is that, I don't know, like, it's something else. It's, it's not like adding parts to your body, but maybe it's making your entire persona or your personage, like, better in some way. Maybe you have awesome lungs that never give out or the strongest muscles. That's kind of what he implies in his speech, right? That, that, I was going to say, Delphine, in, in Leaky's... Yeah, that Delphine right. and Cosima go to, because he, he points out Cosima and says, you know, what if you didn't need glasses anymore? So this idea that we would all have perfect vision and, and not need any type of corrective lenses of some sort. So I think that might be the spiel of Neolution, is that we could we could have excellent health and, and fun high-functioning body parts. Well, that is an attractive theory. I mean, I had LASIK. I used to wear glasses and contact lenses and it was very inconvenient. It took up a lot of time. And then I had LASIK and my eyes are, they're not perfect now, but if there was an opportunity to actually have 20-20 vision without any of the side effects that come from LASIK, you know, I might be tempted to go for it if it was safe. But again, you know, here we always come back. There are lots of qualifiers. <laughs> 
in that statement. That's true. And and I think that's maybe sort of what the series is getting at, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I didn't really think about this, but, but the word is called the Dyad Institute, and Dyad actually has a significant in, in science, right? I, I didn't really recognize this, but you, you pointed this out, that it, it, it um, refers to something in regards to DNA. Yep. So Dyad is another word for chromatid pair. And so we talked a little bit about mitosis and meiosis. So again, kind of harken back to high school biology. Meiosis is when your reproductive cells undergo a specific process to make themselves have the right amount of DNA to be able to recombine with their counterpart. Mitosis is when your somatic cells, just the rest of your body, in the normal course of living and growing up and, you know, getting bigger. And then when you have reached, you know, your, your full height and growth, like you periodically have to replace yourselves. Cause remember we talked about the, the Hayflick limit, no cell is going to live forever. So you've got to continually, you know, if you, if you break your arm, you've got to synthesize new cells and they've got to divide by mitosis. And the way that that happens is that the DNA in your cells, you know, it's 23 pairs of chromosomes, they often make copies of themselves. So uh, a dyad is a chromatid, which means, you know, piece of DNA that is in the process of replicating by mitosis. So I thought that was interesting to to learn. And, and, and you know, I think it raises a question is, does that give some sort of suggestion as to the type of cloning that they might be using? That's what I wondered as well, because, you know, it's not called the Meiosis Institute or the Recombinant DNA Institute. Uh, <laughs> Dyad specifically refers to, you know, the stage of DNA during mitosis, which is, you know, cell division, copying, but not the the sexual cells in a mammal's body. So, you know, maybe that is, uh, what's the word? A clue. But of course, it could also just be if if their big thing is, is genetics and looking at DNA, it could just be like, oh, we're about, to, you know, DNA. But I, I do like the idea that that might be an indication as to how they're conducting the cloning experiments. I would say definitely. I mean, especially knowing now, as I do, that I learned that they had a consulting scientist. I think they, I think that writers choose their words very carefully, yeah. and carefully and with the advice of a scientist, then, you know, it seems like they chose maybe the right word deliberately and carefully. We'll find out on April 19th, 2014. Maybe. <laughs> the only thing that I had a question about, which I don't even really have like a hypothesis about how this could have happened, is how they got the barcode into the DNA in the first place and got different barcodes. Because, you know, we've talked about like how cloning is currently done. That doesn't mean that's how the story is suggesting that they're doing it on Orphan Black. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if they're using somatic cells and then, you know, creating blastocysts, they could be encouraging the blastocysts to split, you know, reproductive cloning, and then manipulating the DNA when it's still just a few cells to insert a barcode into the DNA. And I just, I'm, I'm not current on all of my science and, you know, I worked in bacteria anyway, not in, you know, mammals or, you know, even eukaryotes, but 
I think doing that and creating, you know, 10, I think we've seen like, what is it? Eight clones, nine, 10, you know, but I think there's a possibility that there could be endless numbers. I think that putting in a different barcode like that, because that's how they could tell apart, you know, they could tell that Sarah wasn't Beth when they were analyzing her DNA. Mm -hmm. So inserting a unique barcode would be pretty fiddly, pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. That is a really good question because yeah, when it, when and how exactly would they, would they do that? And you are better equipped to answer that question than I am. And you don't even seem to have a, have a you know definite idea of how they might. I can only think of ways that it could go horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because not only is inserting, you know, the unique barcode into however many different clones that you're working with, like, typically you have to make sure it goes in the right place, that it doesn't insert itself into the middle of a critical gene, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that may be one of the most impressive things of all that the Diet Institute has done. Because even Cosima, who is so brilliant, she was like, we're genetically identical. You know, of course we are. But then, you know, she's surprised when she finds out about the barcode. Right. They say it's an inactive piece of DNA, correct? So it's not really supposed to be doing anything, you know, yeah, producing any, like, any genes or pro- proteins. Yeah. yeah. It's, here's an analogy. If, you, if you're into HTML and you can, you can put things into comments... In, in HTML so that you just see it when and when you're looking at the code and you, it doesn't show actually show up on your web page or whatever. That's what I thought of when I when they talked about the inactive DNA. It's like, oh, it's like a comment on an HTML page. Exactly. And I think that the, the analogy even to carry it further is that you need to make sure that when you're inserting a comment into your HTML that you don't put it in the middle of like, say, a hyperlink or, right. a, or a, a URL or something like that. Because then we've probably all seen web pages like that where something went and there's a bunch of uh, random text. Right. It needs to be on its own line. You can't. You really shouldn't put it in the middle of another set of tags or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. The, so the thing about Sarah being fertile, when I was first watching the series and, you know, I was deliberately staying away from all media about it because I didn't want spoilers or more than I already had anyways. I thought, oh, it's significant that she's fertile. She must be the original that, you know, all these others have been cloned from. But you know, now I'm not so sure. It seems like maybe Sarah is one of many clones, but I think there are some reasons why she might be fertile or maybe not. I think, well, she's definitely fertile, but I think that she asks Cosima on the phone, is it possible that they've genetically enhanced us? And they have a brief conversation about that. And it all kind of came together. Like if we take it at face value that Sarah and Helena are identical twins, then presumably they both would have amazing healing powers. When Helena gets stabbed with dirty, rusty rebar that either went through her liver or her stomach or her small or large intestine, I thought for sure she was going to die a you know painful, if possibly protracted death of perionitis or tetanus or just you know any kind of disease that you would that you would get by getting stabbed right through your abdomen. It may have perforated her small intestine or her large intestine. And even if not, even if it just went through the liver, like the trauma from that and the blood loss, even if she did stitch herself up, which we saw that she did, she didn't have any antibiotics. And, you know, maybe Tomas 
could have given her some, but like that's a really traumatic injury to not get professional help for. And I was, was going to say because even though she stitches herself up, she really just stitches the external wound. You know, she doesn't. She can't even get to any type of internal energy in, injury she might have had because she's not a surgeon. So yeah, and we did see a tremendous amount of blood loss. So mm-hmm. totally, she's not that big. No. <laughs> And so, so there's that. She didn't die of an infection or of the trauma from her wounds. And then, speaking of trauma, when Kira's hit by the car, mm-hmm. it is forever seared into my Which memory. traumatized all of us. Mm-hmm. It was really traumatic for us to view, but if you watch that scene again, and I've seen it twice, she is hit really hard by that car, and she is thrown to the ground and you know even though as felix says in the hospital waiting room kids are made of rubber she'll be fine like a five or six year old kid who got hit by a car that was going that fast i don't think would be fine Mm -mm. and i think it's significant and you guys talked about this on your podcast as well like one of the previous ones when the doctors and the nurses in the er are checking her out and with the ultrasound to look for where the internal injuries are, not are there internal injuries, but where are they and how extensive are they and how quick do they have to get the OR prepped? They don't find any. And that's really like shocking to them. And so I think that, um, you know, I was not like a lit major or a drama major, but to me as a viewer, that seemed like it was very deliberately put there because, you know, either Kira heal herself or she's just very resilient and resistant to injury. So knowing that she's Sarah's biological child, I feel like it's a safe bet to say that Sarah, Helena, you know, and their offspring probably were genetically enhanced to have healing powers. And maybe they were actually designed like all the clones to be infertile, but Sarah's body healed herself of whatever it was that was preventing herself from being fertile. And that's how she, to have Kira. Hmm. That's an interesting take on it. And I don't think I've ever seen that theorized anywhere. Have, have you, Stephanie? Mm-mm, I haven't. But I thought, I thought sort of biologically speaking, clones were infertile for reasons. That is my very high tech explanation of it. <laughs> Am I wrong? Are, are some clones fertile? I'm not aware of any scientific reason why a clone would be infertile. I think okay. that the show implies that the clones are infertile, but I, f- I don't know if, like, Dolly the sheep or any of the other cloned offspring that have to go back and look, if they if they were ever allowed to, you know, sexually reproduce, and mm-hmm. if so, what happened. But I don't, I can't think of a reason why they'd be infertile. Hmm. Wasn't that a thing, though, that we'd, I thought we'd look that up at some point, and clones were always infertile, or am I... I don't think I have. I actually just Googled it real quick, but it's not meriting any particularly good results. Just a lot of, is human cloning the cure for infertility? Are clones fertile? Reproductive fertility of cloned male cats. Hey, Stephanie, derived from adult somatic cells. So there's been a study designed to investigate the reproductive fertility by the natural breeding of cloned male cats with domestic female cats blah 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 so it looks like the male cats can sire children i suppose yeah i can't think of a reason why they wouldn't be but okay you know probably won't be able to verify from the internet in the next 30 seconds okay 
But but you do bring up a good point that there's been clear, uh, you know, they've they've clearly communicated that Beth was infertile, that Allison was infertile. So if they were if they were genetically identical, it would make sense that all of this particular clone would be infertile. So it's surprising that Sarah is not. Yeah, and there there was an interesting comment too that Rachel makes that. Uh, you know, she says motherhood is wonderful or something like that, which could be interpreted either that she too is infertile or it could be that she too is a mother. We're still not sure yet, but there's a, a certain she has a tone when she says it, which, mm-hmm. you know, as unhelpful as this statement by me is, it means something. I'm not sure what thing it means, but because the crafty Canadians and their implications. <laughs> That's right. All their territories and provinces and donuts. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, maybe one, like if the theory holds up of that, that Sarah and Kira and Helena all have amazing healing powers that, you know, were imparted to them by genetic manipulation, that could be one of the aims of the Diet Institute, which is people want to live forever, right? The fountain of youth, but you know, people die and the human lifespan is what it is. And maybe they're experimenting with ways to make people immortal and observing the results of their, of their experimentation. It's possible that um, maybe they got something right with Sarah. So maybe they made their clones infertile so they wouldn't have to deal with all their clones having, you know, offspring out in the world. But then, you know, Sarah, they got something right and she had kids the end. And then, of course, that opens the door of the possibility of either Sarah or Kira possibly somehow providing a cure for Kasima and the others that have respiratory disease. Exactly. So maybe that's it. And we'd like to once again thank Sally for joining us and being our, our scientific expert, a much needed scientific expert. If you want to follow Sally on Twitter, which really you should, she's very funny. Her Twitter u- username is S Heaven. So if you are also sciencey like Sally and you have thoughts on cloning that you can share with us, we would love to hear your insights as to how Orphan Black is portraying cloning. You can send us those thoughts by either leaving a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com. You can send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com, or you can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. And starting next week, we're going to start a review of the first season episodes in preparation for the season two premiere, which I know we're all excited about. So look for that with our next episode. And this week, both Dolly the Sheep and all 23 bass pairs were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thank you for listening. <laughs>